reading through the Bible in a year. And uh, if you're reading with us, we're on Numbers and Acts. And Numbers is very important, very foundational, but very difficult. So I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> Thanks, Dean and Chris, for preaching about it. I'm going to take us to Acts, which on the surface is a very familiar story for those of you who've been in the church. But I think underneath that story about how the church grows, uh, starting from the ascension and so on, are some very deep and important theological truths about God that I want to unpack. And those truths influence what we mean when we talk about holistic discipleship, which is one of the ministry goals. Can you all say holistic discipleship? All right. One of our ministry goals that's, you know, we have a bunch of phrases that are very hard to understand. So I want to help us to understand it and, um, and also to make it real in our lives. Uh, what Dean said is very true. You do all have a role. Every one of you. Um, Nikhil, you know, when you didn't come, we missed you. And um, Susan, when you're not here because you've got to take care of the kids or whatever, we miss you. Every one of you, we miss you when you're not here. Justice, while you're at college, we miss you. So, um, so I believe God has you in this seat for a reason today. And you have a part to play in this body. And whether it's with the person next to you or somebody who's not in this room yet, you have a part to play. So let's pray that God would help us to see that. Lord, um, we know that you've brought us to this church for a reason. We pray that you'd help us to understand the role that we have in your body. Father, we pray that this, this morning, as we listen to your, uh, to your word, you know, we, we don't often think about preaching during Sunday worship as work. Uh, it is work for the preacher. For the rest of us, we just usually think of it as uh, hope, hope he doesn't go too long, hope he's not too boring. Well, since there's no chance of avoiding that this morning, <laughs> Father, I pray that instead you would change our perspective about what we're doing right now because there is work to be done and it's work that goes on in our, in our minds and hearts. And Father, I pray that you would do that work. You would do the work of changing the way we think about um, our lives, about our church, about our relationships, above all, about you. And Lord, help us to understand you more and know you more, understand you from your word, understand you from the stories that we read in Acts, and to um, rearrange our lives accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. As much as we like to compartmentalize different aspects of our lives, if I ask you about all the different areas of your life, I'm sure you could name them. There's work, there's school, there's your family, there's your friends and your social life, there's your health, there's uh, uh, your... your, your um, uh, you know, personal life, all that kind of stuff. As much as we try to compartmentalize it, you know, everything in our world these days wants to take over your whole life. Everything wants to make claims on your whole life. I, I really, you know, we, when we used to talk about health and being healthy, you, you just, we just thought of food and exercise. If you take care of what you eat and exercise, then you're healthy, right? But these days we know that we have a more holistic idea of health, right? Health is not just eating right and exercising. It's also, um, you know, if you're getting enough sleep, it's, are you happy? It's, are you stressed out during the day? And, and all that influences your health, right? And, and the same is true of school. You know, it used to be that school just wanted to know how well you did between the hours of 8 and 3.30. Now they want to know, you know, colleges want to know about your extracurricular activities and how did you spend your time and what are your thoughts and what are your relationships like. Everything tries to be holistic. And you can see this in the way that, the way that um, our worlds end up colliding in all these places. And, and one place that it's so obvious is, is on Facebook. Because on Facebook, you end up friending all kinds of people, classmates, um, uh, <laughs> you know, all, all different kinds of people. It's sort of like, you know, you're in the middle of church and this 
ball will just roll to the front of the church and you're like, where did that come from? It's like an intrusion from the wrong place. Sometimes you guys are on Facebook and you're posting stuff that is relevant to your friends and I wonder, do you know that the rest of us read this? <laughs> you know, like, you'll just say things about your sister and I'm like, D- you can't say that about your sister on Facebook? That's a public forum, right? Like, sometimes I know you guys are just expressing yourself but, but you'll, you'll just post pictures on Facebook then I'm like I really didn't want to see that you know and it's just the way that it kind of our worlds collide it makes sense for you to do that in one world but it kind of doesn't make quite as much sense in another world um, our worlds intersect and there's a way in which the, our worlds intersect that is what we mean by the word holistic it touches on the whole and when you decided to become a Christian, those of you who have decided to follow Jesus, you didn't know what you were signing up for. But you know, what you were signing up for is that Jesus would have a claim on your whole world. On every aspect of your life. Okay? When you asked Him to be Lord, you weren't just saying that He's Lord of the universe. You said, Lord, you're going to be Lord of my, my family, my schoolwork, my social life, my inner thoughts, everything. Now, you may not have known at the time what that meant, okay? And that's okay. That's what faith is about, all right? But when you said, Jesus, I want you to be Lord, you invited him into all those areas of your life, all right? The the challenge, though, is, is how do I do that? How do I make Jesus Lord of my schoolwork or of my work life? or my family life, or my my dating relationships, okay? And that's what we mean by holistic discipleship. Discipleship is one of those confusing words, because sometimes you you know discipleship has something to do with following Jesus, but discipleship is also something we talk about in church, you know? Like, oh, I'm going to a discipleship meeting, okay? And what that means is you're meeting with other people. So you're meeting with other people, but you're meeting with other people about Jesus. And that kind of points to the answer to the question, how do I learn how to make Jesus Lord of every part of my life. Because none of us knows how to do it naturally. None of us knows how to do it by ourselves. And the answer to that question, how do I make Jesus Lord of everything, how do I learn how to do that, is the same as the answer to the question, what is Elaine's favorite TV show? Anybody know what Elaine's favorite TV show is? (laughs) No, the answer is community. Okay? The answer is community. God's community is where, where you learn how to uh, walk with God in every area of your life. All right? That's the role of God's community. And so if you watch community, you know what I'm talking about. I'm going to get a little meta about our community here, okay? And talk a little bit about who we are as a community and what we tend to do, okay? And to do that, I want to talk a little bit about when I was in college. Anybody know what a DTR is? Raise your hand if I say DTR and you know what it is. All right, so you do. When I was in college, it was this thing that went around that there was this phrase DTR. And what DTR meant was kind of like this, okay? Let's say I'm in my college fellowship and let's say there's a girl that I think is kind of cute and I kind of like her. So I'll go and kind of spend time with her a lot. I'll call her on the phone. Hey, just want to talk. How are you doing? And then, you know, when I go to first fellowship, he's the first person I go and talk to and the last person I say goodbye to. All this kind of stuff. And so people start noticing. And so, you know, one of my brothers come up to me and they'll be like, hey, bro, I noticed you've been talking a lot to that girl. And then you kind of say, yeah, I, I kind of like her. I, I'm interested. I, I think she, maybe she's interested in me. And then they'll say, oh, I think you've, I noticed you've been hanging out with her a lot, you know? So, so what's going on? And he goes, ah, I kind of don't know. It's, it's a thing, you know? I don't know. And then, the, then, then at that point, your brother would take you aside, put his arm around your shoulder and say, bro, you need a DTR. And you'd be like, what's a DTR, man? 
you need a DTR. You need to do a DTR, right? And they'd explain. A DTR stands for define the relationship, okay? It's the conversation that you know you need to have, where you sit down with her and you say, look, lady, <laughs> I like you. No, <laughs> this is how I feel about you. And then you figure out, what are we? Are we boyfriend, girlfriend? Are we dating? Are we courting? Are we just magnetically attracted to each other? Are we avoiding each other? Are we just friends? Are we waiting until the right timing? What exactly are we? And, you know, guys started talking about guys and girls. They all started talking about DTRs and all these, like, ambiguous relationships that you know, you know, when you're in college. You have all these relationships. And, and you start going, oh, hey, can we, have, can we talk? I think we need to have a DTR. And just people would just overdo it. It was just DTRs. And people were having DTRs with their cat. You know, it was like just like too much DTR everywhere. You know, like, okay, okay, it was, it's overdefined now. But what was good about that phrase DTR is it gave us a label for a kind of conversation that we weren't naturally having, but we knew we needed to have. And once we had a label for that kind of conversation, then we'd start having that conversation. And once we started having that conversation, things became a lot clearer, okay? It became a lot easier to know that all those girls I DTR'd with were not interested in me, right? That was very clear, okay? And I think it's important within a community to have a culture where the conversations that you need to have happen. And I'm going to say that in, our, in a church community, the conversation that needs to happen is the one where we talk about how God is God in our lives. And I'm going to go so far as to say in this church, we have very, very kind people. You're all very polite, very caring. If I needed something and I called out, help, all of you would come running. Okay? That's a wonderful thing. But we, for whatever reasons, and I can think of a whole bunch are very hesitant to talk to each other really deeply about spiritual stuff. Right? We very rarely say things like, I think God is trying to bleh. I think God is saying to you bleh. It's like awkward for us. Okay? But it's so important that we learn to have that conversation with each other because that's what God's community is meant to do. And so, um, <laughs> it'd be funny if the result of this sermon is that we all start having DTRs. I'm not talking about DTRs. What I'm talking about is that I want to introduce to our church, we want to introduce to our church community something that I'm calling the questions. Everybody say the questions. The questions. Okay. I'm talking about two questions that we can ask each other. Two questions that we are now allowed to say to each other. And those two questions don't have a right answer. It's not a test. But they're questions that show you genuinely care about somebody, but you care about them spiritually. Okay? These two questions open up all kinds of doors for you to think about and talk about very real spiritual things. Okay? Just two questions. They're very easy to remember, and you're going to remember them by the end of the sermon today. Okay? I'm going to make you repeat them, and then I'm going to hope that you ask them to each other. It's so important that we learn to do that. All right? You're all wondering now what the two questions are. Okay, here they are. The first question will come there. <laughs> what is God doing in your life? All right, everybody turn to your neighbor and just say the question. You don't have to answer it, just say it. What is God doing in your life? Very good, what is God doing in your life? Very good, okay. Good, good, good. That's question one, okay? What is God doing in your life? Here's question two. How are you responding? 
Turn to your other neighbor and ask them, how are you responding? How are you responding? How are you responding? Okay, now let, let me give credit where it's due. Uh, we, as a staff team, decided on these questions, but we got it from Chris. Okay, thank you, Pastor Chris. Who got it from a book? Thank you, book. <laughs> but uh, another way you can put these questions, and actually the way they were originally put, is how is God speaking to you? Okay, which is related to what God is doing in your life. And what are you going to do about it? Okay, and we, we kind of like the first way it's put, or I don't know, some, some, some mixture of those. But it basically goes like this. God is doing something. What is it? And then what are you doing about it? And the reason those questions are so important is because we recognize in the Christian life that it's not us who does things first. It's God who's act, always actively involved in working and doing things. And our role as his followers, as his children, is to respond, is to do what God calls us to do. Okay? And so imagine a conversation. Jordan, you and me go to a cafe. No, cafe is weird. You're in junior high. Me and you go to uh, McDonald's. Okay? I'm sitting over fries. And I want to know about how, how you're doing spiritually. And I'm just going to ask you two questions. And the first one is, what is God doing in your life? And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> so we talk about that. And we figure that out. And this one small question turns into this long conversation about your family, about your friends, about your schoolwork. And we talk about that for half an hour. And we identify all these things that God is doing. And then I say, okay, second question. What are you doing about it? How are you responding? And you start thinking, oh, well, it seems like in my family God's doing this. And I think I'm supposed to be doing that. And then I go, all right, bro, go and do it. Okay. Can you imagine that kind of conversation? And can you imagine that in every stage of your life, in fact, in every week of your life, that conversation, that same, those same two questions will have very different answers. And that the answer to those questions is the unfolding of the story of your relationship with God, your obedience to God. Pretty cool, huh? Do you like the questions? Really? I think we need a ratification vote. Who agrees that these will become, for us, the questions? Can you please raise your hand? Okay, anybody disagree? Out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, good. Ratify it. Right. I just pressured you all into that. But um, what I want to do, though, today is I want to unpack those questions a little bit and why they matter and what they mean. Sheen, no soup for you. Okay. Um, I'm just kidding. All right, so what we're going to look in the books of Acts, and we're going to kind of identify some of the theology behind these questions and also understand how they apply to us. And then at the end of this, Daniel's going to help me out to talk about why this stuff is so important for our community. Okay, so be, to start off as an English teacher, I'm going to review two SAT words with you. These two SAT words are two different ways that we can get God mixed up, that we can be wrong about God. Okay, so all you high school kids, take notes. All right, this is our sermon. Um, Epicurean, what's an Epicurean? Anybody, I'm here whispering. Anybody know? Come on, Kevin. Yeah. Person with refined taste. Ding, ding, ding. Hi, right, nice job, Konga. You are a freshman. Wow, look out, UC Berkeley. All right, um, Epicurean is a lover of food and wine, a person with, with the kind of taste that like, really knows how to enjoy gourmet. Okay? Now, where do we get the word Epicurean from? We get the word from a set of philosophies that were held by people who, in, the, in the Greek culture around the time of Jesus and, and the Apostle Paul. Okay? And the Epicureans were a philosophical group who ascribed to this belief that God or the gods or whoever they are created everything and then just kind of let it go. It's kind of like they're a clockmaker. They set the clock, they create it, they get it going, and then they disappear. 
Okay? And since the gods are distant and they're far off and they're unconcerned about our everyday life, that means that our job, our task, is basically just to live our lives as best we can. To try to get as much happiness out of our lives as possible. Alright? And the reason why we get the word Epicurean from that is because the idea then is if, if there's no God or if God is far off, if God doesn't really care about our lives, then basically our job is just to live it up. We've got to enjoy this life that we have because that's all there is. All right? And there, there, therefore you get the idea of, oh, I'm going to enjoy my life. I'm going to have fine cheeses and wines and that will be the highlight of my life. All right? All right, SAT word number two, stoic. Anybody know what stoic means? Mitt Romney. <laughs> Mitt Romney. Very good. Uh, stoic. What, what, what way is Mitt Romney stoic? Yes. Yes. Very good. 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 Uh, Stanford for you. And you already graduated. So, <laughs> stoic is... Um, not expressing your, your feelings, okay? And, and actually not so much maybe hiding them, but not, not necessarily having them, all right? And actually the word stoic we also get from a group of philosophers, a certain philosophy that was around during the Greek culture. And the stoic philosophers believed that rather than God, the kind of opposite of the Epicureans, rather than God being far, far off and far away, that God is in everything, okay? That the divine is in you and me and this piano and that chair and those rocks and those trees. And the idea is this. If God is in everything, if the divine is in everything, all you have to do is get in touch with the divine. Live in harmony with the rhythms of nature. And once you can do that, then you're going to find meaning and happiness. Okay, that's where you find truth. Alright? So, on one hand, you have the Epicureans who believe that God was far, far away, unconcerned with your life. And therefore, you just live whatever you, however you, you want to live to find happiness. The Stoics believe that God is in everything, so you have to get in touch and, and basically subsume your will to nature in order to find happiness. Okay? Let's go to Acts. We're in chapter 17. If you've been reading with the, the Gospel on every page, you know that we're following now the Apostle Paul it is, as he goes from town to town to town, preaching the Gospel and starting churches. And here in Acts 17, we look in verse 16, and if you have subheadings, it says in Athens. Okay, Paul's in Athens. Athens is like a capital, a center of Greek learning. All right, and I'm not going to read every word of these passages, but I encourage you to go and read them if you haven't yet, or to go back and study them again. Paul's there in Athens. He walks around, and he walks into uh, what's called the Agora, which is a marketplace. Okay, and it's literally a marketplace where they sell stuff, but it's also a marketplace of ideas. Okay? The same place that they exchange goods and, and, and products that, that uh, merchants bring, they also exchange philosophies. And that's why you see that in verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers started debating with Paul. And they have their philosophies and ideas about gods, and Paul comes and he's, he's bringing this Jesus stuff. He's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And they're like, what are you talking about? I've never heard this before. This is really weird. Okay, you're just coming out of the blue with this stuff. And so, um, so they say, oh, okay, well, let's, let's kind of vet this new philosophy that you're bringing along. So they bring him to something called the Areopagus, which overlooks this marketplace. The Areopagus is a council, kind of a philosophical council, where they sit here and they hear from and discuss these different philosophical ideas. Okay? Now, 
That sounds a little bit like a classroom. It sounds a little bit like a university, which it kind of is. But another way to think about the Areopagus is that they're bringing Paul there because he's preaching foreign gods. Somebody else was also brought before a council because they were preaching foreign gods and a trial was held for them and, and, and they were killed. This is Socrates. Okay? So when we talk about coming before a council like that, it is to hear their ideas, but it's also potentially to say, that's a, a dangerous idea. We're going to execute you. Okay? So this is a little bit like a courtroom. All right? Now, I want you to see where Paul is. He's in a place that is kind of an intersection of a marketplace, an economic marketplace, a, a place where people are discussing philosophy. It's also a courtroom of ideas and a place where there are tons of religious idols. All the different areas of life, not all of them, many different areas of life intersecting in this one place. Okay? And you have here a kind of a summary of what he said and, and it's amazing how sharp he is, how he speaks to all the different philosophies that are going on around him. Okay? He says this, People of Athens, I'm on 22. I see that in every way you are very religious for I walked around, looked around at all your objects of worship. That's what he calls their idols. And I saw this altar to an unknown God. Okay, now Doug schooled me a little bit about this just before the service. This altar to an unknown God was also an idea. It seems like it was related to the Stoics. I'm not really sure. I'll have to ask Doug a little bit more later about it. But there's this idea that you have all these gods, right? The God of war and the God of the harvest and blah, blah, blah. But that, that you can't cover everything. And, and that there's something transcendent or unreachable about God. Okay, so you have to reserve this altar to, or you have to have an altar to God, the unknown, the unknowable. Okay. But what Paul does is he takes that idea that somebody else has there and, what he, and he takes it in order to proclaim the truth that he's found. He says, you have this altar to an unknown God and so you, you're ignorant of the thing that you are worshipping. And this is what I want to tell you about. I want to tell you about this transcendent, um, uh, far beyond us God. Okay? Now pay attention here to what he says. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Right? Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Okay? And if you read into, if you look at what he's saying, he's saying that the Creator God made everything. Yes. Okay? And so don't you think, Stoics, that God is just something that is an essence inside you and me? Uh uh. God is other than us. God is a transcendent other. Okay? He made everything that is. All right? And He doesn't need those things to serve Him. Instead, He provides for everything that is. Okay? Then He says in verse 26, From one man He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Okay? So against the Epicureans... Paul says, don't you dare think that God made everything and then just left it alone and he doesn't care. Uh-uh. God has been involved in every aspect of our lives. All of human history, God has had a hand in shaping. The fact that you are right here in front of me, Paul says, the fact that I am here and you are there, the clothes you're wearing, the people you're sitting next to, everything that has happened in your life, all of the moments and all of the incidents and everything, God has been involved to bring you to where you are today. 
That's a profound thought, brothers and sisters. It means that today, the fact that you woke up in the bed that you woke up in, the fact that you are sitting next to you, God has had a hand in those things. Okay? He is involved in those things. Alright? But then he says, in verse 27, God did this so that they would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him. Okay? So even though God is involved in everything, it doesn't mean that we can just look around and say, Oh, God is right here. I'm God. You're God. This is all God. Right? Instead, He is still other than us. And so we have to reach Him and, 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 and seek Him and try to find Him. And then Paul says, Even though He is not far from any one of us. Okay. So it's really subtle, but do you understand? It's so important that he says, you've got to get God right. He's not far away and doesn't care, but he's also not just what you see around you in your life all the time. He still is calling you to something different. He's calling out from beyond what you see for you to reach out to him, even though in fact you find that he is the one reaching out to you. And then it says, for in Him, we live and move and have our being. It's not that He lives in us. It's that we live in Him. Okay? And then he says, as some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. And what Paul does there is he basically says, let me clarify the metaphors. Alright? Some of you think that God is a clockmaker who makes us, you know, starts us off and lets us run. Okay? It's not that. Some of you think God is like our souls. It's inside of all of us. It's not that. Okay, here's the metaphor. God is our father or our mother. And you are God's son or daughter. He is other than you, but he loves you. He is different from you, but he cares about you. Okay, now some of you guys are like, oh, that's not good news. I don't want dad to be, God to be like my mom. She's always all up in my business. Yes, but she loves you. That's the point. Paul is presenting the theology of both imminence God is here, and transcendence. God is beyond us. Okay? Now, what does that mean, and why does that matter? We've been talking about, um, we've been talking about this idea of, um, that uh, God is always at work everywhere. That means that in every area of your life, all those aspects of your life, that you separate. So, uh, let me be honest with you. I think a lot of you in here have church. And when you think about church, yes, God is there, kind of. Then when I think about work, maybe God is there. Maybe somebody asked me about if I'm a Christian or if they asked me to work on Sunday and I have to decide whether I should or not. And then you think about your friends. And maybe you think, oh, some of my friends are Christians, so we can, we can talk about church and how, how we can sing some similar songs. Right? But you see what I mean? You have all these areas of your life separated and, and, and you don't know whether what God has to do with any of those things. Okay? And when you, when you believe that God is always at work everywhere, okay, what you start thinking is that in all those areas of your life, God is doing something. Even if Paul is not there to tell you so. Even if Dean isn't there to point out to you that God is at work. Think about your school. Okay, those of you who are in school. On Friday, you had class, right? When you were sitting there in math, did you realize that God was there? Did it seem to you that God was doing anything? But he was. That's what this truth means. Okay? Or for some of you guys, uh, this morning when you were eating a bowl of cereal with your family, did the thought cross your mind that God is here? That there's something going on that he's doing with my parents or my cousins or whoever you live with? He is involved, in fact, in everything. 
Right? And you can see it in Paul, in the very fact of what, not only what Paul says, but where he is. You know, what's going on in this, in this passage is that Paul's traveling around, and he's headed to Rome, and he's in Athens. And if you look at a map, I have one, okay, you see that he's, he's going up to Rome, up there, top of the boot, okay, and uh, he left from Antioch, and actually, he's at Thessalonica, which is... I need a laser pointer. Oh, this is one. No, it's not. Okay. Uh, he's like up at the top of that little, little horn thing right there. Anyway, the point is, he's headed to Athens. I mean, he's headed to Rome from Thessalonica, Berea. But Athens is this way. Okay, he's going this way. He ends up this way. And the reason Paul's going this way is because what happens is he goes from town to town. He preaches to the Jews in the synagogue about the gospel. They all think he's crazy. So they reject him. And then he has to run away and go preach to the Gentiles. And then some of them believe, and then, uh, and then all of the people that he's riled up and who are angry at him and, and the other people, they chase him out of town, and all the believers there who become Christians have to, like, oh man, we've got to get this guy out of here, so they throw him on a boat, and <laughs> he just ends up wherever he ends up. And right now he's ended up in Athens, and he's not even supposed to be in Athens, he's just sitting there waiting for Silas, okay, and Timothy, he's just waiting for his partners. But, but for Paul, nothing that happens is an accident, God is always everywhere. And so he ends up in the city Athens and he looks around and he goes, oh my gosh, there's all kinds of idols and there's this marketplace and here's this altar to an unknown God. And okay, hold on. This all seems foreign and crazy to me, but you know what? I believe that my God is the God of the whole universe and so he must be at work somehow here. My God is at work here. So what is he doing? Well, I see they have this altar to an unknown God. I see they're sitting here debating. I'm going to tell them something. I'm going to tell them what I think about all this stuff they're discussing. And he starts explaining to it. And he gets in all kinds of trouble. Right? But he sees in this place that supposedly is separate from God. is outside of God's realm. He sees the way God's at work. Do you do that when you go to work? Do you do that when you're at school? Do you hang out at campus and go... My God is doing something here. My God is up to something here. Okay? What is God doing? And, you know, I, I got to say, this comes out, the fact that we don't know how to answer that question and we don't really know what that means, it, it comes out every time I ask you guys for prayer requests. All right, let me just be real honest with you here. You know, youth especially, I care about you guys. <laughs> you know that, right? And... And we do always do prayer requests. We do it every week in Young Disciples during Lego time. And we say, what can I pray for you about? And I've been doing youth ministry for a lot of years now. I'm so tired of praying about your grades. Okay? Now, I'm a teacher. Okay? I get it. School is important. I get it. But every week... What's going on in your life? How can I pray for you? Oh, I have a C and this and I have a D and this. You go through your whole GPA and I'm like, man, I I don't care. All right? And, and, what I want to say, and, then, and then there's people who realize that and so they never share about school. And I'm like, well, how can I pray for you? Well, there's nothing. <laughs> nothing to Nothing's going on in my life. God is not doing anything. My life is just this void of I just go from one place to another. But uh, the reason I get so tired of praying for, for your schoolwork is not because I don't care and not because God doesn't care, because God does care. Okay, don't make the, the mistake that the Epicureans make and think that God is not involved in your schoolwork. He is involved in your schoolwork. He is involved in your life at school. But don't make the other mistake that the Stoics make of thinking that the way the world thinks is the way that God cares. God cares about your schoolwork, but He doesn't primarily care, honestly, if you're getting an A. That's not the most important thing to him. 
Okay? And the same thing for others of us who aren't in school. God cares about your company, but He's not primarily concerned with your profit margins. God cares about your family, but He's not primarily concerned that your mom leaves you alone. God cares about your dating relationships, but He's not primarily concerned about you winning an argument or about how much she or he likes you and makes you happy. God cares about your health, but honestly, God is not primarily concerned about how many years you live. He has bigger and other purposes. Right? Just to, to give you an example. We need an example right now, don't we? I think we need an example. Just to give you an example, um, I, uh, <coughs> Elaine and I are kind of going through a process right now of, of trying to figure out what to do with our house. Mortgages very ugly as I've shared with you before and the whole time I've been really conflicted I just don't know what we're supposed to do with it and I don't know what's right and I don't know because we bought that house because it was a gift from God it was a calling felt like God intended for us to live there and so now the thought of doing something with it is really sad and scary and, and, and it's hard to figure out what God wants and what God is doing with that situation in all my uncertainty it's been a huge blessing because every time I bring it up in a group. There's always somebody in that group. And sometimes it's actually been Chris or, or others of you. Somebody who knows about it. Somebody who's been through it. Somebody who understands it and who has just good advice for us. And I'll just give you an example. Um, I came home from, from school really tired, really stressed out. My next door neighbor who's not a Christian comes up to me and says, hey, how are things going, man? Hey, I, I know your house. I know what you guys bought it for. You know, you really need to start finding out how to take advantage of the, you know, making home, homes affordable programs and all that kind of stuff. You need to get on that. I was like, yeah, you know, I do. I've been thinking about it, but I just don't know what to do. And he said, well, here's a phone number. He gave me his card because his dad is a real estate lawyer. From that, I got another contact and got another contact, ended up talking to a nonprofit agency that helps, that counsels people like us who aren't sure if we should foreclose or we should um, ask for loan modification or whatever. Long story short, end up in an appointment with a nonprofit, and uh, just a couple weeks ago, we went there and we sat across this table from this really... Um, See, how would I say, how would I describe her? A, a kindly but very, like, all business African-American woman who, um, who was like, all right, let me see your documents. Let me tell you what, we, what you need to do. You know, let me, let me explain the process. Okay, now you understand me and Elaine. That's all good. But Elaine and I are very, like, emotional people. Like, when you tell us, like, can you bring your pay stubs? We're like, I don't know where my pay stubs is. You know, I just feel kind of sad. You know, <laughs> that kind of people, right? And so, so, she's, so she's looking through our documents and, and all this kind of stuff. And she notices one of the things that I work partly for a church. And she goes, oh, you work for a church. And, uh... And I go, yeah, yeah. And she goes, oh, I, I do too, actually. I'm a minister at a church. I do this. This is my job as a nonprofit, but I'm a, I'm a pastor. I said, well, I kind of do that kind of thing too. And all of a sudden, we start connecting about faith. And she starts talking to me about all the people that walk in through her doors who their lives are broken and they're at the end of their rope and they're in trouble and they need her help. And that right there in that very room that we're meeting talking about our mortgage and looking at pay stubs and documents and stuff like that, she regularly has a chance to minister to often non-Christian people and tell them that there's hope. 
And suddenly, this meeting about our mortgage turns into like a prayer meeting, you know? Like, we're doing hallelujah, amen, as we like, what about this, what about this? Oh, God, praise God, you know, oh, we got to pray about that, you know? And all of a sudden, it just changes around this whole thing. And it made me realize that this whole struggle with this house, that I don't want to think about because it's just not my thing, is an area where God is actively involved. Where, just like here at church, I could share with you about whatever spiritual thing is going on. For God, this whole thing with our house is a spiritual thing. Right? And in the same way, every area of your life, God wants to let you know, I'm doing something. Okay? Alright, that's question one. Question two is, though, how do you respond? And I think that's a hard thing to learn. It's very hard to learn how to respond. It's hard to learn even what God is doing in all those areas. What does it look like when God is at work in your family? What does it look like when God is at work in your school? What does it look like when God is at work in all this stuff? Do you know? I don't really know. I certainly didn't know growing up as a kid. I I didn't grow up in a Christian family. My parents never prayed. I don't know what it means to be a Christian in most areas of my life. And so I figured out at a very early point that I need someone to teach me and I need to learn. Okay? Go with me to... um, Actually, come back to Acts 18. I'm going to try to do this super quickly because I want to get to the part with Daniel. But um, Paul says this stuff in Athens. And you know what? A light goes on for everyone else, but I have reason to suspect that a light goes on for Paul too. Because starting from verse 18, the strategy changes. And for those of you who've been studying, pay attention, because this is a part that's interesting about Acts. If you go before this and you look at all the chapters before in Acts, you'll notice that, at least from about 13 onward, Paul and Barnabas set off, and they go to one city and another city and another city. And just like I told you, they preach to the Jews. Many of them reject him. They preach to the Gentiles, and then some people become Christians. And then they get chased out of the town, and then they leave. And that's how they go from town to town to town, right? Good, right? Good, because then they get to spread the gospel in many places. Starting from verse 18, there's a strategy shift. Here's the strategy shift. Paul ends up in Corinth. And remember, he's just had this crazy engagement with the Athenians about how God is everywhere and in everything. And there in Corinth, same thing. Goes to the synagogue, preaches to the Jews. They start um, protesting and being abusive and and violent. So he goes to the Gentiles and he starts preaching to the Gentiles and they start responding. And then Paul has a dream. And in his dream, God speaks to him and he says, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in the city. Okay? We're like, okay, yeah, that sounds like God. Don't worry. Stay here. But... What it means for Paul is a change of strategy. Because every, everywhere he goes, people are going to kill me. i got to get out of here. <laughs> Next town. Hey, Jesus. Da, 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 da. People are going to kill me. i got to get out of here. Next town. And he gets here to Corinth, and he, and he preaches the gospel, and he realizes people are going to kill me. And God says to him, stay right there. Don't go anywhere. I'm going to keep you safe. Why? Because I want you to keep on preaching here. i got people to reach here in Corinth. And so rather than staying for a month or two months or three months, Paul ends up staying for a year in Corinth. And what does he do in Corinth? He trains up leaders who train up other leaders who train up other leaders. He stays and he shows them what it means to be a Christian with his life, with the example of day-to-day living and suffering as a Christian. Then he goes back to Antioch, kind of checks in with the home, home base, and then he goes to Ephesus. And same principle, 
preaches to the Jews, preaches to the Gentiles, starts getting persecuted, and decides instead of running away, I'm going to stay right here. Three years. Two and a half to three years. Paul continues his ministry in Ephesus. You see the change in strategy? He stops thinking that my job is to go in here, tell him Jesus, and then get out of town. Okay? He starts realizing that my job is to, is to go there, preach Jesus, stay there, and let my life be an example, and teach people who will teach people who will teach people who will teach people. And we learn to live as Christians together. And finally, when you get to Ephesians 20, look at verse 13, and we're just going to fly through it super quick. He's going around town, and he realizes that God wants him to go to Jerusalem, and that's a dangerous thing. And he says his farewell to the Ephesian elders. And I'm not even going to explain it too much, other than just reading it. So, would you look at verse 18? Uh, yeah. So, 17 from, from Miletus or whatever, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So the Ephesian elders arrived and he says, look, you know how I lived the whole time when I was with you. Okay? Hear the passion in this man's voice who spent almost three years sharing his entire life with these people. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of the Jews. And you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. Have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. It means I told you about the gospel when you came to me and your kids were sick. I went to your house and I saw the things that your family was going through and I preached the gospel to you there. Okay? Um, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Okay, let's skip down. 25. Now I know that none of you among whom I have, ever, have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. And therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of everyone for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he, brought with he, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number some will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I have never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. And now I commit to God and the word of his grace which can build up build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions and in everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work that we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. What he's saying is, look, guys, Continue what I've done here. I spent three years with you. Okay, Every minute of every day was for you. I cried tears every day for you. I found whoever among you was hurting the most. I went to their house. I cried with them. I prayed with them. I suffered with them. And in every situation that you had, I told you the gospel is real. So Winfield, you're struggling in school. God has a plan for you. Your sister just died. God has a plan for you. Okay, You are full of sin. God will save you. And he did this day in and day out and struggled with them. And he raised up leaders. And now you can see the passion of this man who's given his life for this church saying to, to them, now I'm leaving and, and you'll probably never see me again because I'm probably going to die. Continue this, please. And in the same way that I gave my life and opened everything that I was for you, 
keep on doing that with each other and keep speaking God's truth and keep finding out how God is working and let that continue on and on don't let it get distorted right and how do his listeners respond verse 36 when Paul had finished speaking this is how I hope I go when I die he knelt down with all of them and prayed and they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. What made them saddest was that they would never be able to be with him again. And then they sent him on his way in a ship. What Paul shows us is that something, a light went off in his head. Maybe. Maybe in Athens, he's talking to people and he says, you know what, God is anywhere and he's everywhere and he's always at work. And the light that went off and he said, if God is always at work, then I have to stick around long enough to figure out how that, how that happens, what that looks like. And so in Corinth and in Ephesus, he stays and he opens up his life to people and he goes into their lives and then he asks them to go and do the same to each other. And that is how the kingdom of God spreads. That is how the church grows. That's how people come to understand how to respond to how, what God is doing in their lives. Okay. Thank you for going through all that with me. We're done. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there's, there's implications of that for us. And, um, and I think this is the implication that's really important. Is that what your church life is like? If you were moving tomorrow, would anyone here cry? If you weren't here, would anyone miss you? And see, if your answer is no, it's not because you're not important. And it's not because you're not lovable. Okay? In fact, just as Dean said at the top of this thing, each of you has a role. Each of you has a place. And each of you is supposed to matter a lot to somebody here. And each of you is supposed to be influential on someone in your life, someone in your world. Okay? And I was, I was just talking to Katie Sheen about this earlier this week. When I was in high school, somebody at church set me up with a discipler. Okay? I grew up in a non-Christian family. I have no idea what Christian marriage looks like. All I know about marriage is my dad and my mom. And my dad and my mom, they're great parents. They're very loving husband and wife. I love them to death. But for my dad and my mom, basically Chinese culture told them how to be. Okay? My wife, my mom listens to my dad. My dad is the boss. He takes care of things. My mom doesn't like it. She'll have to deal with it. So cool. Suck it up. Okay? And then 30 years, start complaining all the time and threatening divorce <laughs> until he gives in. <laughs> so I had a discipler. His name was James. And he and his wife Doris, the way they discipled me is they invited me over for dinner. I sat there at their dinner table and had dinner with them. And we had dinner. After we had dinner, me and James went off. We talked about guy stuff. But you know what? I don't remember even that much what we talked about. But what meant the most to me was sitting there eating dinner with James and Doris. Because Doris prepared food and James got up and he said, Honey, can I help you? What can I do for you? 
Okay? And he, and, you know, she started working on this and she very gently asked if he could do that and he did that. And just the way they were, they flowed with each other in the kitchen was this give and take of generosity and love and I'm here to serve you but you're here to serve me and we just want to serve Paul with this love. And to this day when I'm in the kitchen with Elaine, I still hear, I still remember so distinctly how James opened his life in his kitchen to me to see how he lived a Christian marriage. And that's so much fundamental to how I understand Christian marriage. Okay? So what I'm saying is this, guys. If you're part of our, this church, and, and I'm, I know you, so I'm talking to very specific ones of you. If you come to this church, but you're not in any kind of relationship where somebody can model for you, speak to you, encourage you, and frankly, when you're going off track, call you out and say, Hey, buddy. If you don't have that kind of relationship, you're not really living in this church. You're not really part of this family. You're not really fulfilling the role that God has for you in this place. And each of you, God wants to put other people around you to teach and encourage you. And each of you, God wants you to be a part of someone else's life to teach and encourage and model for them. It's this flow. It's these generations that are supposed to go on. And when we talk about holistic discipleship, that's what I'm talking about. Okay? If I ask you right now, do you have a discipler? Who are your mentors? Who are the people who show you how to follow God in every aspect of your life? Could you name them? One. Who's one? Two. Who's another one? Three. Who's another one? Okay. I have a, a, a spiritual mentor that I meet with every six months or so. I have Pastor Lai who mentors me in ministry. I have a friend, actually, you guys remember Russell? He was a speaker here before. I meet with him once every year or so, but he just helps me to figure out how, as, a, as an academic, as a you know, graduate student, I can be a Christian. Right? And then, of course, I have Elaine who mentors me on how to pick up my socks. <laughs> and then there's ways in which all of you continue to mentor me. But that only happens because I... Make the decision that you are my family and I open my life to you. Okay? And, and so I'm going to ask Daniel to come up here. Thank you all for your sticking with me. I know I went super long. But I'm going to ask Daniel to come up here. And Daniel and I had a conversation that I kind of want to relive for you guys. And this is how we'll close. Okay? Um, we're going to do this interview style. Daniel, you can sit on the stool here. Uh, you stand, why don't you stand? I'll sit on the stool. I'm tired. You, you, you can stand over here. How about that? So Daniel and I had this talk, and, and it's about sharing your life. And, and I think this is really important because this is where we need to go. Okay, so Daniel, we, we started talking about this like two Fridays ago. Sheen led a great Bible study about testimonies, right? Yeah. And the youth were giving their testimonies, and y'all remember that? Fides? Okay. Kevin, remember that? All right. <laughs> Nikhil remembers that. And you had some thoughts about testimonies and why they're important. Do you want to share those again? Well, um, for me, testimonies was just like you guys. First, at first, it was just like, oh, we have to give it. We're being forced to do this, and it's just something that we should do. But I have no idea why we're doing this. And I remember my first time giving my testimony at Yugo down in Mexico for a mission trip, and I just didn't know what the heck was this gonna do. And I just gave it because everyone else did it. But after going to college, I began to realize, wow, testimonies really do have an impact. Testimonies really do have a purpose in God's work and just watching all the young disciples just laugh around and just 
kind of slandered what testimonies really it was just got got me stirring up and I was just like I really want to share what I learned yeah. to these people yeah thank, thank you Daniel and I think not just the youth but really all of us all of us need to really understand what you mean but when you said that testimonies have like an impact or a power what, what do you what do you mean by that well testimonies they no matter who you give them to they have some kind of impact if you give it to a community if we give it to one 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 another we build kind of a trust. We build uh, by giving you my testimony, by sharing to you my struggles, what I've been through, what I'm, what's going on, what's God doing in my life, and how I'm responding. I'm building this trust with you. I'm telling you, letting you guys into my life. I'm telling you, yes, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with that, but I'm also doing this. Then it builds this kind of relationship with uh, with, with each other that really is really defined by God. If I share with you. Yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I am broken. Then it opens up. It lets you open up to me as well. And we then have this kind of accountability for each other. We have this trust among each other. And by building these trusts with each other, we have this community that we could just bond and just go out and just proclaim the gospel and just just further his kingdom. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you said that, what, what about for people who are not in, the, in this community, like non-Christians and friends, do you, do you also share about you know, your testimony and what's going on in your life with them too? Well, for non-Christians, um, when you give your testimony to them, you also kind of build this trust, but it also lets, it kind of explains how real you are. Explains that, yes, I'm also a sinner, again, and how like the misconception that pe- when people look at Christians that there are these perfect people that de- they always do the right things but by opening your testimony and telling me them, yes I, I'm a sinner too and I struggle with the same things you do you're setting you're relating to them and makes it makes it more easier for them to relate to you and thus another building our friendship building this trust among both of them and also an easier way for you to get into them get, get, get to know them better for them to get to know you better and when, and when they see that you've been through the same things that they've been through and that you have this thing called God, you have this relationship that helps you get through all of this, then they'll be, they'll be questioning you, how? How do you get through this? How come you're struggling with this but aren't so devastated by it? How come you are different from I am? And then you're able to share gospel yeah and I think it's really cool that the youth are learning how to do this and like in a couple weeks this week we're having game night we're inviting our friends who are not Christians and some of you are going to share your testimonies and that's amazing and I think those of us who are not youth really ought to look at them as an example and to say what are we doing what opportunities are we opening to do that but finally just to kind of wrap us up in this Daniel how did how did you learn how important this was like what kind of experience did God bring you through to understand how important it is to open your life and to share your testimony and stuff like that. Well, uh, like I said, I learned all this when I entered college, and college really opened my eyes out of everything and just opened my eyes to the people, and more importantly, that everybody has a story to tell and everyone has something going on in their life, whether it's drastic, whether it's small, but everything, everyone has been, has sin, everyone has brokenness, and everything, mm-hmm. everyone has. You don't know, when you look at somebody, you don't know what they've been through, but you know that they have been through something. Mm-hmm. And a lot of events really help open my eyes to this, especially 
testimonies given to other by other people, and especially some of my small group members and small group leaders actually. And I remember one testimony how my my my, my small group leader that I never really thought about, never really, really when I looked at her, I didn't really think, oh, she's like this. But just hearing that she's been through all these kinds of things, that she's been abandoned by her parents, that she's been molested, and been been through all these things, I was just Wow, what the heck? I did not know. Just looking at you, that you've been through all these. And another one, another one of my smuggler leaders, that he's struggled with homosexuality. That he still has tendencies to just go, go, go do all these things. And and I was just, I I looked up to them. And why? How come they've been through all these? But it, of course, it didn't ruin my respect for them. And I respect them even more, being just. Seeing how they're able to open up these things to me and open up to everybody, and a lot of things, other things happen. Especially a retreat that I went to called Trilogy, and we, as a whole fellowship, we went up there. And for my ministry, my group, we it was divided to like three different groups of people, depending on how many years you've been there. And my group, they talk a lot about community and talked a lot about building this trust among community and just furthering the kingdom using this community. And after that, coming back from that retreat, coming back from Northern California, we, it was it was amazing. Like how Paul's talking about how they define that talk as DTRs and how they <laughs> labeled it as DTRs. We labeled it as community, and people were just giving testimonies. People were just. We, every time we saw each other, we were just like, so, what's your testimony? And so, what's your testimony? And then we just had everything like prepared, and we just shared. And then at that moment, it's only been two months of the semester, and I felt like I was so connected with everybody. I felt like I was so interwoven in this community. I just felt such a big part of this community. And it just made my experience just like, wow, God, you're doing this so much. And also, just... After that, I, I just became just so aware of that my testimony actually does have an impact, and my testimony actually does do that. that it does it does build trust, and that it does help. And some examples of that was would be just one of my friends, one of my, one of my floor mates actually. He, I'm, I remember talking to him one day. He was just sharing about how, oh, I don't like this college. I don't like <laughs> I don't like Eastern Reset because. The people here are fake. That people, the the people on this floor, just I don't trust them. I don't believe in them. I don't believe in this community. And then, when I remember one day bringing him to my community, bringing him to university, and and then after two weeks, I haven't talked to him. I didn't see him for a while. And then two weeks, I see him again. He just tells me, "I gotta thank you, Daniel." This community that introduced me is just amazing. And even though he doesn't, he's not a Christian. Even though he doesn't believe in it, he really likes the community. He really likes the trust that we have with each other, and he just likes how real we are with each other. And another person who's a non-Christian who actually doesn't go to our fellowship or doesn't go to our college, when he, after a birthday party that we had, and he was there just hanging out with us, and after going home, I gave him a ride home, and he was just talking about I don't understand. He just told me I don't understand, and I asked him, "What don't you understand?" He and then he told me, "I don't understand how you guys can have so much fun, so much, <laughs> just have such a great time without drugs, without alcohol, without all the other stuff." And then how you guys are just so real. How you guys are so 
trusting and honest to each other. And then I shared to him about my experience when I first came into college. I shared about how after Trilogy, I shared about, I shared about Trilogy. And then he was just, he was just silent. And again, I didn't see him for like another week. But then two, uh, after that one week, when I saw him again, he was just so into our fellowship. And he was trying to quit smoking. He was t- telling me about what God's been doing in his life. Mm-hmm. And he's just telling me all these things that he's been working on and all these Bible studies been going to. And I was just amazed. Mm-hmm. And even coming back to Hawk 6 for retreat and just sharing to some of my brothers about what I've been through and the brokenness and struggles I've been through and just having some of them open up to me, I was, I was certain that God really does work in testimonies and God really does give us a story to use and just gives us some way we can use that story. Thank, thank you so much for sharing with us. You guys give Daniel. Thanks, Dan. So, um, how do we know what this God who's always active in our world, how do we know what he's doing in our lives? How do we learn to understand that? Well, I want you to look at somebody in this room and to minimize awkwardness, maybe just look at the person in front of you. Right? And for you in the front row, I guess you have to look at me. Sorry. <laughs> and imagine asking that person in front of you, as awkward as it may be, what's God doing in your life? And opening up the door through that question for them to testify to what God is doing in their life. And if they don't know, help them figure it out. And then to figure out how we respond. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for um, uh, your word. And uh, it's such an exciting thing to follow Paul and these missionary journeys. But Lord, most importantly, we want to take lessons about what you are like and how you work. And God, we understand that your church is founded upon your gospel. It's founded upon the grace and forgiveness that we have in Jesus. The truth of who you are and how you've intervened in our world. You are our cornerstone, the one who makes everything happen. And we know that you are involved in all the areas of our life. We want to be holistic disciples, Lord. It's very hard to know how to do that. Very hard to understand in all the contexts of our lives how to do that. And so I pray for our community that you would grow bonds of relationship um, with older and younger people, with people at different stages of life, or even among people who are you know, really just the same as each other. And build the bonds of relationship and help us to be loving enough and bold enough to ask the questions. Hey, what's God doing in your life? How is God working in your life? What is God speaking to you? And, and then to, to be bold enough to say, cool, well, how are you going to respond to that? What are you going to do about that? And, and by, by those questions, to encourage each other, to challenge each other. And Lord, most of all, to open up our lives to one another so that there is space within which you can work. God, we pray for this and ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much, uh, Daniel and Paul. I think we're going to sing one song, and it's going to be um, Knowing You. So if I could, we're also going to take offering there during this time. So if you are a member of uh, Home of Christ, we encourage you to give. But if you are just visiting, uh, don't worry about it. Just kind of um, reflect on, on what was shared and just how great it is to know Jesus and to be able then to, to testify to that. world reveals and wars you own all I 
counted loss spent and worthless now compared to this knowing you Jesus knowing you there is no greater thing you're my all you're my rest you're my joy and I love you, Lord. Now my heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you, and known as yours, to possess by faith what I could not earn, all surpassing gift of right. Why don't we stand? Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're my rest, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Oh, to know of your risen life and to know you in your sufferings to become like you in your death my Lord so with you to live and never die